0: Let's all go to the lobby Let's all go to the lobby Let's all go to the lobby Together
1: a treat hello and welcome to movies versus capitalism an anti-capitalist movie podcast i am frank capello
0: and
2: i'm rivka rivera
1: rivka what's going on how's your weekend been going
2: it was a good weekend i went and saw magic mike the last dance Ooh. in theaters and actually maybe it's just because we're doing this pod now and everything i see i'm like This should be on the pod, but we'll definitely have to do that movie at some point.
1: I would do the entire Magic Mike trilogy on this podcast. Yeah,
2: it might have to, including the reality TV show on HBO, which is actually gold. Basically, they gather all these men from all different walks of life to come together and become the best strippers they could possibly be. But it's like it's it's about your inner stripper. Mm -hmm. it's so it's so good I loved it
1: yeah and it's about like body positivity and like you know fighting against like toxic masculinity and stuff like that right oh
2: it's so good
1: tell me about the movie
2: it's a whole well I thought it was going to be a little better than it was to be honest but there is a dance scene like the first scene of the film if you see anything just watch that scene and you can leave but it's it's gorgeous and it's you know they try to tie it into this whole thing about it's steven soderbergh and i don't know i I got the sense it was like are you fucking with me actually it's interesting the topic we're probably gonna be talking about today capitalist realism but i thought there were some moments where i'm like are you intentionally trying to take me out of this film to like have me think about this too much which is not what i wanted in that moment i wanted to be full on in that lap dance that's all i wanted Interesting. so i didn't appreciate being taken out of the moment
1: got it so we've arrived at like the meta version of magic mike in this third one okay
2: yeah but i'm a fan i mean i'm a fan i did a whole channing tatum <laughs> hole. <laughs> so let's move on um next topic Frank.
1: i got you i got you um I wanted to talk about this concept. It's something that we've talked about before and something we wanted to address in this podcast specifically, the concept of performative anti-capitalism, specifically uh, as it relates to film. So I'm going to be pulling from the book, as you mentioned, uh, Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. The concept of capitalist realism is basically the assumption that capitalism is the only possible form of economic organization and the projected reality that is constructed from that assumption. This is best summed up by the famous quote by former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. And another quote attributed to Frederick Jameson and Slavoj Zizek, it's easier to imagine the end of the world... Than the end of capitalism
2: okay frank those were a lot of words Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i feel like i'll come with this concept i feel like i'll my brain will come around to understanding it and grasping it and then being like what is capitalist what is being discussed here but so in my understanding of it when i hear that i think the the last phrase you used about it's easier to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism i think there's a reason my brain kind of bumps up against this misunderstanding or this inability to even conceptualize capitalist realism because of what it's talking about right it's almost like these limits on imagination in a lot of ways
1: purposely imposed limits on imagination right that's basically it it's just like over the last 40 years after the you know especially after the fall of the berlin wall the end of history as francis fukuyama put it put it like that was like we have been conditioned to believe that it will just be capitalism from now until the end of human history like for the next what thousands and thousands of years like like economic organizations don't evolve or whatever so
2: that's right. that's,
1: that's broadly what this this concept is describing
2: yeah and and it comes up in the simplest sense of when I really, when you try and think of these structures, take, for example, abolition. And when you really try and imagine a world outside of policing, at least when I'm honest with myself, I'm like, I can, when you really sit with your brain through that, you're Mm -hmm. like these, all of these um, limiting literal blocks start to come up that for me, I experienced it as like a lot of fear or, but that can't be, but that can't be. And or artists, right? I like to think that I'm in the practice of imagination. So it's really profound how limiting that can be. But I do think that's why the role of the artist and imagination as a practice and a muscle is so important because I don't think that we were born with those limits. I really do think those are constructs that come along with this capitalist society in many different ways. I think it's really interesting talking about the realm of imagination as well as creators and writers and thinking about these films that we're looking at and these filmmakers Because, you know, people always say, well, I pulled from my imagination or why can't I tell this story? I'm going to just write it out of my imagination. And I think we have our inherent authentic imagination, but we can also imagine from a collective place, which can be really beautiful. But you can also imagine from um, a collective capitalist place, from a collective racist place, from a collective sexist place. And without a critical analysis of that, you could so easily mistake some of those ideas as authentically being your own. You know, we carry this sort of baggage of our society. We are not just going through this life solo. So we carry this baggage and throw it into our work all the time. And I think a good critical analysis of that is important.
1: I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. And I don't want to drill down on capitalist realism too much right now, but I wanted to pull this specific concept from the book that applies to what we're doing, um, which is uh, performative anti-capitalism, specifically in film. So in the book, Fisher lays this out, quote, "...in fact, capitalist realism is far from precluding a certain anti-capitalism. After all, anti-capitalism is widely disseminated in capitalism. Time after time, the villain in Hollywood films will turn out to be the evil corporation." far from undermining capitalist realism, this gestural anti-capitalism actually reinforces it. And then he goes on to use the movie WALL-E as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, a movie that I'm sure we'll get to on this show about a future where the world has been consumed by garbage. You know, it's like a hyper-consumerist uh, society that humans are now living in. So he, he lays this out and is basically saying like, he says, quote, a film like wall exemplifies interpassivity. The film performs our anti-capitalism for us, allowing us to continue to consume without impunity. So I just wanted to bring this up because I think it's a really um, interesting concept. Uh, And I I, I largely agree with it. I do think, you know, for a lot of people, you know, seeing anti-capitalism in art and media can give you the feeling of oh, wow, I'm really I'm doing something by like mm-hmm. ideologically agreeing with this. But you're not actually taking your politics to the street. You're not taking your politics mm-hmm. out into the world in a material way. So I think that I think this is largely true. Um, but the one place where I would slightly disagree is I think it's better to have these messages in these films rather than not have them at all. Mm-hmm. What how do, how do you feel about this?
2: Yeah, I feel mixed. I mean, I think there's room for both. I think the critical analysis is important. I mean, of course, theatrically, I think about Bertolt Brecht. For anyone who doesn't know, Bertolt Brecht was a German theater maker and did a lot of anti-capitalist work and very much was in this vein, believing that the classic idea of um, sitting back and being the spectator and observing the characters on stage, bringing you to this emotional climax, but you're just observing the whole time. He felt that similarly that that was um, a passive observation and you weren't active as a participant and therefore couldn't be active in the politics needed for this change that his theater was advocating for. So there was a lot of breaking the fourth wall, a lot of ways in which um, you were not allowing your audience to be a spectator and have to be engaged which I think is super important and valid. And I'm excited to think about all the ways that we can break those forms in film and theater. And yet I also happen to really like an emotional climax and have been moved to make important changes in my life as a result and have been moved to take political steps as a result. So I don't know. I'm sort of firmly in the middle, but I appreciate and understand these ideas, you know,
1: I think you're right. I think as long as you are recognizing you know, your role as a spectator, but then also pushing yourself to be an actual actor, not like a film actor, but like an, an actor out in the world who actually is putting these ideas into practice or into praxis, I think both can exist. But it requires that extra step of actually going out and doing stuff and organizing and getting involved in different, you know, advocacy groups, whatever it is, however it is Mm -hmm. that you actually, you know, make a material difference in the world. I mean, I think about this in terms of just us doing this podcast, like, is this podcast Mm -hmm. us just, you know, talking about this stuff? Or are we making a material difference by talking about this stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that I grapple with uh, internally all the time.
2: I do think there are creative ways that filmmakers and artists are thinking about that. If you're going to go in that route, there's a call to action. Like if there's an intention or a political intention behind your film, how do you architect the way that film comes out and where you can send your viewer after they have maybe a cathartic experience to further their um, education or their action I think the thing that's really disappointing is when you see a film that you thought had some sort of intention or motivation, and then you recognize that the architecture is the exact opposite and harmful to the people involved, harmful to the people that it's supposedly trying to help. And I'm sure we'll get into versions of that. But that, I think, pisses me off more than anything.
1: Yeah, I think that's a tendency that we should definitely try to avoid at all costs if we can. All right, well, that's a good place to move on and let our audience know that this podcast is produced by the two of us.
2: We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen.
1: And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon.
2: For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com.
1: You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it.
2: We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back with our discussion about Children of Men with Chris Myers. So, we are joined by Chris Myers today. And Chris is a New York City based artist and actor, attended LaGuardia High School with me, we were classmates, and then went on to train at Juilliard. He won an Obie Award for his performance in Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and Octoroon, and most recently performed in the show Where the Mountain Meets the Sea at MTC, which was fantastic. In addition to acting, Chris is also a teaching artist and an educator and founded Anti-Capitalism for Artists, a community dedicated to raising class consciousness among artists, which both Frank and I got a chance to take one of your workshops with you. So welcome to Movies versus Capitalism, Chris.
3: I am happy to represent the side of capitalism today. Uh,
1: sure. <laughs> oh,
3: you're you're taking the pro position in this
1: one? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, cool. I did, we, we didn't plan on that, but all right, let's, let's roll with it. Gotcha.
3: No, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much, y'all. That was a lovely introduction.
2: Chris, were we your favorite students?
3: Ah uh, yes, the answer is always yes to that question.
2: Wonderful, right. wow. so, perfect. Okay, <laughs> we did it. Podcast done.
1: Yeah, we don't need to record the rest of this. That's all we <laughs> needed. Um. So, Chris, the movie you chose for us to watch today is *Children of Men*, released in two thousand six, directed by Alfonso Cuarón, starring Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Claire Hope Ashitey, and Michael Caine. Uh, it's based on the novel *The Children of Men* by P.D. James, published in nineteen ninety two. Uh, the budget was $75 million and worldwide box office was around $70 million, so not a giant smash hit. Um, the synopsis of this movie is it takes place in a dystopian near future where humanity has become infertile. And as the world descends into ecological chaos, a former activist named Theo, played by Clive Owen, is recruited by his ex-wife to help transport a miraculously pregnant woman to a sanctuary
2: some historical context for this film this came out in 2006 uh george bush jr is president and tony blair is prime minister and we're smack dab in the middle of the iraq war congress just approved a 700 mile fence along one third of the u.s mexico border saddam hussein has been executed the enron trials are wrapping up and the execs were found guilty The E. coli spinach outbreak just raged. And Steve Irwin is killed by a stingray barb, which was revelatory to me. I always thought it was a crocodile. Um, So this is this is the context of where we're at when this film comes out.
1: A very sad time.
2: Intense time. So, Chris, why did you pick this film for us to watch? Let's start there.
3: Ah, okay. so like. It's funny, I picked this film very quickly, and I had to be like, "Wait, is this appropriate for you, know, representing my, my values and beliefs in art?" And You know, I, I, I actually think that the, the number one reason, if I, I want to start here, is that this film is extremely good. It's a great film. Every single aspect of it is operating on a very high level. Right? Yeah. The writing, the design, the performances, every single thing cinematography, the sound. Yeah. Incredible. And I and I think I, I wanna start there because I think to the extent that I do believe in agitation propaganda, I do believe in applying critical thought to the content of our film. I do not think that any of that can outweigh the quality of the art making itself. Um Otherwise we might as well just do other things. Like we might as well teach, write speeches, you know, but if we're going to do the the art version of it, I think that should be really good. I think there's also some really practical reasons. Like if your art is really good, more people will watch it. So like, if you want to like get messages across, it actually behooves you to not cheapen out on the art just because you feel like you have a message. So like, that's really important Mm -hmm. to me. I do think that that's not necessarily common sense for, like, artists on the left or whatever. Hmm. Um, but I think that, like, I wanted to really highlight that. And but, but on the content level, I think, I don't know that there's actually a discernible kind of politics in this film. I think what makes it really stark in a kind of anti-capitalist way is how accurate of a mirror it is to the way our world and, and society here in the West works. And that's actually really hard to do. Um, and I think hopefully we'll keep talking. We'll get into like the nuances of how the film accomplishes that. But, but it's so dark and yet I don't think that it like a lot. I'm a big sci-fi nerd. A lot of like post-apocalyptic sci-fi, you kind of get the feeling it, 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 there's a little too much enjoyment in apocalyptia. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of like cool, you know, and like this film is not happy. Mm -hmm. It has to be showing you this. And it's not precious about anything. Like even the editing, you know, I think this is around the time when like MTV, you know, cut everything into into smaller and smaller edits and just string them together. And like, there's these long shots that like demand you think in terms of continuity. I mean, I'm getting a little film theory here, but I think that there's something postmodern about cutting things to a million pieces and stringing them together and like disorienting you. Whereas this film is like really big. No, there's like, there are continuities. There's cause and effect, stick with it, watch it unfold in real time, in excruciatingly painful real time. And a combination of that, that realism that isn't precious or revel, like, like doesn't revel in it, doesn't enjoy it. And then also against all kind of odds, Finds its way to the most like unpretentious sense of hope and beautiful hope Mm -hmm. at the end is wild. That is so hard to do. Yeah. Um. And it makes me think. And I'm sorry. I hope to not talk always this long. But like, what I would say is like, I don't think that anti-capitalist art is necessarily always about like thinking like, what would art be like if we didn't have capitalism and kind of like being in this like kind of dream space. I think that's important. We actually do a lot of that in our community at A4A. But I think that anti-capitalist art should also necessarily be concerned with pre-revolutionary art. Like, how do we get to that moment? And, like, Mm -hmm. it's actually really common to just throw, like, critique and heaviness at people and be like, now do something about it. And not offer them any Mm -hmm. stirring Mm -hmm. or rousing sense of motivation or hope. And I think this film is, like, such a rare to this day i mean it came out one thing that wasn't in your intro list it came out when we were graduating high school yeah. so it's, been, yeah, it's yeah. been a while actually wow. yeah
1: totally blank totally blank <laughs> that that was the year that i graduated <laughs> high school yeah
3: it's been, and yet nothing has changed right and like so few films like this have come out since then so. that's why
1: chris that was first of all that was beautiful that was a fantastic overture to get us into this um I completely agree. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First, I completely agree with you about the filmmaking on its face. This is like a masterfully craft, uh, crafted film from, like you said, from the production design to the camera work to the performances, everything. Um, and it does, it really does make you sit in the discomfort of this world that, as you said, is a a pretty like a, a pretty logical mirror to our own. And I think that's... That's one of the most brilliant parts of this film and in in sort of like in addressing what you were saying about like pre-revolutionary art as opposed to like art that exists post a capitalist framework. um, This film does such a great job of just uh, filling out all of the tension and the uh, the terrible nature of these conditions through just like the details of the film itself. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't, it doesn't beat you over the head with the information. It doesn't really, no one's addressing like the state, like what, like what state power is in this future. Like there are no open conversations about like, and I was actually reading in the book that this is based on, like, it's very clear, like this is an authoritarian state. It's been, it's run by uh, you know, the, the quote warden who is like, you know, Right. Whatever like the prime Minister has like consolidated they don 't mention that at all. All they do in this film is you know they they throw in these details of just like walking past open air prisons and not even not even mentioning them or just seeing like just the the, the casual refuse that is all over the streets um, and I, I I really agree with you, and I wanted to bring this up that like as far as dystopian stories go i really gravitate towards something like this, as opposed to, you know, more of like a 1984 Brave New World Fahrenheit 451, uh, which are like so conceptually different from our world. I I think that this film fits much more in like a parable of the sower realm, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, where societal collapse is slow and accepted, accepted by the people who still live in this world, like like the frog in the pot of water who's boiling. Um, Yeah. And again, with like the, the way that it just depicts the deep like, you know, there's there's constant scapegoating of illegal immigrants just like in in signage in just like casual conversation Mm -hmm. you know like they they just pass over uh there's like a one shot just like here's some religious zealots and they're having a giant you know like a giant uh, congressional congregational meeting they don't even address it they're just like this is just part of this world um and then obviously there's also like the massive poverty that's going like completely ignored. And then we get to see like people who are still living a life of wealth. So it's like perfect world building and it it gets its politics across without having to, like you said, like really like explicitly say what its politics are. It's mm-hmm. I mean, I, I loved getting to revisit this. This was such a, a cool rewatch at this point in my life.
2: Yeah, I'm with both of you. And I love this point that you're making about artistry, Chris, and and how because it would be one thing to have these ideas, but this is, I mean, Quran's a- master I mean it's incredible Mm -hmm. to see how much intentionality I mean he talks about how much his influencers are are Naomi Klein and, and he's so many influences that he's pulling from I found a quote where he talks about this isn't a prophetic piece that this is just a compound of studies and essays of other people around the time so it's intentionally not in this realm of fantasy or sci-fi, but that it is a reflection like you were you were talking about. And I know I read that he had sat down with his designers and they had initially brought him some of that like sci-fi world. He's like, no, this needs to reflect. I want it to, and it really does. I mean, this is taking place in 2027, but it, it looks just like our world now in a haunting way. You know, he decide He talks about also just making the choice of not having close-ups, so everything is in a wide because mm-hmm. the environment is so it's the most it's the most important character. That choice alone, I, I mean, I had to. I watched this in the morning. I couldn't even watch this at night. It was so. I was like, this is mm-hmm. so scary. But uh, to your point about hope, I think for me, I was blown away. I didn't remember it as being so optimistic. I didn't mm-hmm. expect mm-hmm. to be so excited about humanity and it happens right at the very end and i think um one of the themes of this film is faith versus chance which is so beautifully articulated um jasper the character that michael kane plays uh speaks about this midway through the film and starts talking about how everything is mythical is a mythical and cosmic battle between faith and chance and they reference Yin and Yang, Lennon and McCartney. And then they get into this quote, which I think, Frank, you have.
0: Julian and Theo met among a million protesters in a rally by chance. But they were there because of what they believed in, in the first place, their faith. They wanted to change the world and their faith kept them together. But by chance, Dylan was born. This is him? Yeah, that's it. It had been about your age, magical child. Beautiful. Their faith put in Praxis. Praxis? What (laughs) happened? Chance. It was their sweet little dream. He had little hands, little legs, little feet, little lungs. And in 2008, along came the flu pandemic. And then by chance, he was gone. Oh, Jesus. You see, Theo's faith lost out to chance. So, why bother if life's going to make its own choices? Ah, I, I find it really
3: interesting you chose that because I actually have a note about that exact speech, specifically the last line. I actually dislike this speech. I think it's actually kind of dangerous, right? Because Jasper, expertly played by Michael Caine, very charming you know, smokes pot, yada, 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 farts, very funny guy. Yeah. <laughs> but What is he ultimately, you know, advocating for? You know, he finds his way to apathy at the very end. Why bother if life is going to make its own choices? And we must, we must remember that at the end of the day, even though he calls Sid a fascist pig, he is in fact collaborating mm-hmm. with a fascist pig, right? Sure. He, and, and I think generationally, you know, he reminds me of kind of, somebody who maybe was involved in leftist movements and just stopped caring at a certain point. You know, as a Marxist, I am a, you know, I, I take up this kind of philosophical, uh, grounding of dialectical materialism. And actually this idea that there's a dichotomy between faith and chance is kind of like not useful for how I conceive of like changing the world, but Mm -hmm. actually, you know, whatever we think of as chance is, um, malleable and um there is all kinds of good reasons you know he says why bother if life is going to make its own choices it's like this idea that life makes its own choices is why you can sleep well at night and be collaborating with the fascists right because life is going to make its own choices it's like actually you can make a choice a different choice we can all make a different choice sure and i think that 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 moment is in the film because and this goes back to what you were saying i think earlier So much of this film shows us how, you know, things won't go out with a bang. Like we will all just, most of us will just go along as the world is clearly ending. We will just go along with it and we'll make up our own, we'll rationalize reasons why it's okay. You know, and some of us will have really beautiful poetic uh, uh, rationalizations and some of of us will have more simple ones. You know, I think Mm -hmm. it's important to note that the film starts with Theo, Going to work, day drinking. Like some of us will numb ourselves with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Some of us, his, his. I think it's his brother-in-law or whatever. The guy, the guy Cous- who, his worked, cousin, yeah, his cousin. You know, he's. They're all popping pills. You know, probably like the best designer shit. But like, you know, anything mm-hmm. to. I mean, that guy literally says, you know, Clive Owen is like, well, how do you, how do you do it? And he's like, I just don't think about it. it's his you know, it's like yeah. that, 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 that is yeah. like a constant refrain. And I think that's just. And I think, I think Jasper's more. Poetic, but he's basically saying the same thing. I just, you know, yeah. I, what, am, what are you going to do? I throw my hands up.
2: Well, I think, what do you think, Chris? Because I think it's, I agree with you that it's dangerous, but I feel like this is the, this is the, I love that it's in there because I do think it's asking mm-hmm. us the question. And I right. found that was so much of my journey watching this movie as an audience was was trying to find what are my moments of faith? What do I feel yeah. powerless to? And I actually felt mm-hmm. my experience was, I had a lot more, I felt like a lot more agency and recognition of my own power, which I think is interesting because yeah. I do think the effect of so much sci-fi is to lean towards, you're just powerless to these things, so lean back and let it happen. But the fact that the faith, they have the faith in the human project, but they do have to make these choices to get there. Right. And that the choice, yeah. our choices are connected to faith, that it isn't this false dichotomy, that they're mm-hmm. very much connected and that there is a spiritual force in this movie as well which is this magic of humanity and this magic of, you know, I think the women in this film are incredible how they, they're, the women and the, and the animals and the nature shepherd mm-hmm. this sort of like spiritual truth. But it is a, tr- I guess that was, I love it because I I kind of leaned on recognition of you have to make choices that are guided by faith, but you can't sit back and not Absolutely. make choices.
3: I'll just say real quick as a response to that, that I, I think that, it's a tricky speech, but I think he actually contradicts it by making the choice to sacrifice his life so that everybody yeah. else can get going.
1: And I, I read, I, I agree with you that like the, the oversimplification, like the moviefication of that speech, like it has to be, like there has to be just like a clear like dichotomy choice of you know faith versus chance. It can be dangerous, but I, I read it in that moment as uh, you know Jasper's character basically using Theo as like a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was my read on it, and that like, but as someone who can at least call people on their bullshit, um, and that seems to be that at least was my takeaway from his role in this moment was to be like, yes, yeah, some bad shit happened to Theo, and then he gave up. He gave up mm-hmm. on humanity. He gave up on what he believed in, just because like life is really dealt him a shitty hand at one point. But you know that that was ultimately, I feel like he's disapproving of Theo's choice. Um, and I think, like the rest of the movie, goes to show, mm-hmm. like you know what what can happen when your faith is reignited, which is mm-hmm. I th- which is what I think what is Clive yeah. Owen's arc ultimately.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, on the whole and I'm curious how what your experience was because the whole time I was like, there's I really was like there's no humanity. Like I didn't remember I'd seen this film so long ago I didn't remember what happens. I'm like, is there a humanity project? Mm-hmm. It's like they test you the whole time, and to me that was just like I kept thinking about. This idea of like uh, that, you know, the Tony Cade Bambara quote about the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. I just felt like it 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 really did something remarkable around that, which was just I was like pulling at my own faith in, in spite of how brutal this movie is, and just brutal in the sense of like it's not giving you any fantasy. Like you're not, you're just like this is so real, and we are all living in the in the fantasy.
1: The one thing I did think by the end of this movie, um, which I had never really clocked before was like, I don't know if I fully, um, if I fully went along with Theo's like political development throughout the, like from the middle to the end of the film, I guess, I guess just in this rewatch, I was like, is he just doing this because his ex-wife was killed? Like, does, like, does he actually believe like, like, because I didn't see any sort of like demonstrated moments of, him, you know, like re-articulating his faith or re-articulating his politics. Um, I mean, I know that, like ultimately he like sacrifices his life. So clearly he believed in something. And, and maybe that's just like me wanting wanting uh, some of these themes to be laid out more clearly. I usually err on that side, which is like, well, you know, sometimes it's good to just like say what you mean out loud and, and l- not leave it so much up to the audience to decipher because audiences can take the wrong message mm-hmm. away from that. Did you feel yeah. like... Do you feel like you, like, really went along with Theo's arc? Was there anything missing in there for you? Or your...
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel like what I, what I like about Theo is he's a, it's a really well-constructed anti-hero in the sense that, like, in various ways, he doesn't want to do anything that he's doing. And so even after his ex-wife is killed, um, you know, the, the story, he still wants to get out and back to London as soon as possible. You know, he's at that, the safe house or whatever it's only because he overhears that they're going to kill him that he makes a dash from there. So it's exactly. just pure self-preservation. And I think like it truly just becomes about self preservation until it, it doesn't. I mean, I don't know. It's like, I, I feel like it, there's an emotional beat that I don't know if I exactly know where it is, where it feels like, you know, with that baby, with that promise of a new world that, uh, after having lost like so much, like he literally mm-hmm. is like shoeless, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And
1: he, continue, he continues to lose throughout this mm-hmm. entire, like mm-hmm. he just keeps losing more. He loses Jasper. He, lo- he loses mm-hmm. his shoes. He loses everyone that's there to help him and Key. Like it's just a movie of just like losses after losses.
3: And, and I think everybody in Beck's Hill, I mean, I think Beck's Hill is like a location where even those people who are, who have lost everything, like, you know, they take your watch on the way and you have not like, the people still go on, right? They still in mm-hmm. Bex Hill are like building a society in a ghetto. And like, you know, there's like different p- gangs and political, like it's like people still don't get like, they, they, that, that bottom just for some reason never. And it's like, I think what's important about his journey is I think at some point he comes to realize, you know, I never really had anything, you know, <laughs> like this world is ending and, and he just kind of brought so low to the point where I think he accepts that, which I think is, is a kind of lesson for revolutionaries that like, you know, everything we have is kind of given to us by this oppressive system. And so, Mm. yeah, on the one hand we had, there's like a contradiction and like, we have it, but it's all kind of built on blood. And so I think that like his journey is kind of being so stripped down and just refusing to, at a certain point, accept it and rather, you know, it's like, just, yeah, there's, there's something about this metaphor of this child, which is like the promise of a better world to come, that he just, at, at a certain point. And I think, you know, maybe you could even say that on some level, he thought he was going to make it to the human project on the boat. Like, he didn't think he was going to just <laughs> take a bullet and, and shoot sure. it out. Like, he still probably on some level was like, I get a shot to live, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. this is my
1: only way out, yeah.
3: Like, I do feel like you get you get peace from him at the end. Like, a peace that yes. he's never had.
2: And what I love about what you're pointing out, Frank, is because I, I felt that way, and I was like, I, I th- and I, and I, I think it might be intentional. Like we're so I know Koran likes to play with um, what we typically think of. He talks about sort of narrative film being hostage to narrative. And he does a lot of choices not to give us a lot of um, narrative straight out. It's in the it's hidden in beautiful different ways. But like, Mm -hmm. I think that he's intentionally playing with what our idea of a hero is or an anti-hero is, but like, I do think along the lines of chance versus faith, I wouldn't say that he's he's the vessel that honestly the women in this film have chosen. <laughs> and I think that says a lot about <laughs> sure. how, movement, how move, movements work, that everything is moving forward because of the choices of a whole group of people. And typically you would find a film like that being like, this is the hero moving this forward and he's doing all of these things. And really he's along for the ride. And they've decided, as well as, again, the animals, I love how in every frame there's like a kitten crawling up his leg or like all the Mm -hmm. animals have chosen Mm -hmm. him, that it's sort of, um, but it feels like a collective choice that no matter what this, this girl, this child is going to make it to the human project. And he can't really get in the way of it, and he kind of tries everything. You know, he's sort of just like they're like, "No, we've chosen you, we trust you." But I like that he's not the savior of this film.
1: Yeah. Sure, like the reluctant hero, the reluctant leader. Yeah, that makes sense. What did you both think? This is a random question, but you know, like the the storyline of the Fishers, which is like this. We're to, to believe like this leftist militant group. Um, yeah. But they have a they have a turn. They have a really dark turn where they're like, we're just going to use this baby for political purposes. We're going to kill this guy like we're yeah. if anything, we're we're probably just as bad like the movies saying to you, like these people are just as bad as most of the other, you know, most of the other actors in this film. What did you take from that? Because for me, I was like, I'm always bummed in a movie where like the the people you think that are like the more leftist activists end up being like fucking Evil as well. Like, how do you reconcile that? Because I'm always like, damn, I wish that you know, maybe mm. like that could have been handled with a little bit more, a little bit more care.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important, you know, I didn't, I didn't catch that when I first watched this, you know, uh, or my first probably ten watchings. But now that I'm more enmeshed in, in left politics, um, and frankly the history of, of uh, different political tendencies on the left, I think that it actually is a really valuable moment because. You know, I think that they represent um, a very, very common uh, pitfall of leftist organizing, which is like a kind of accelerationist thing where, Mm -hmm. you know, you just want to get the shit going. But you can contrast that to the the human project and which presumably are, you know, also uh, leftists. And I think you also, by the way, if you recall... You see some kind of in in Bexhill. You see some kind of old Soviet. You know that's the guy who takes them in, kind of toward the end of the film, gives them some issues. shoes. Mm-hmm. There's like Soviet pictures uh, or stuff. But you see how, you see a couple of different kind of tendencies of of like left organizing. But I think of and I know this isn't for this podcast, but I I, I just recently watched Andor, which I do hope to come back and talk about. And like, dude, there's same. similar yes. vibes. Yeah, yeah, there's similar vibes to like how they show the like the resistance as a really methodical, organized. Disciplined organization feels very similar, like Andor in and the Human Project. Whereas, you know, the group that you would tell, uh, the, the fishes, fishers or fishes?
1: F- fishers, I think.
3: Are like really undisciplined and mm-hmm. perhaps um, lack in uh, theory, you know? And I think, again, as a Marxist, like, you know, not everybody listening who's an anti capitalist might agree with me on this, but I think that those things are really important. I think that we handle the contradictions and we raise them only when appropriate. And it's really tempting to want to jump the gun, but um, you know, I, I I do think that it would have I don't think I don't think it would have helped their cause to 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 use the child as they as they wanted. And I and I also last thing I'll just say is this is part of a larger thing that I think the film also hints at, which is there are many forms of organizing in this film, right? There is religious organizing. There is like this kind of mm. maybe anarchist organizing. Um, there's state organizing, like there, you know, even in Bex Hill, there are, you know, gang organizing, like there's so many forms. And I think that's a really important lesson. Cause like we think of organizing as something, maybe like a historical thing with like a grand illustrious theory behind it. But like, I think it's also important. And this goes back to the Fishers is like, organizing is all around us and it actually isn't that hard to get going. Like the Black Panther Party, the... Communist Party of China, they started with book clubs. People just got around and started like sharing ideas and they built parties and organizations. But like, I think there's a lesson in there, like somebody's always organizing and we have to choose really carefully what theory guides that organization. And, we're, and, and we have to pick a side, right? Because if we don't pick a side, you know, not doing something is doing something or not doing something is allowing the people who are doing something to gain ground, right? And so I think that, like all of that, is contained in the Fishers. And I think, yeah, I think that I think as a Marxist, they were incorrect to <laughs> want to, <laughs> to to use the child in that way.
2: But I also I appreciate Chewie Tell's performance because I think I also missed that. I think in a first viewing or the, the complexity of that. Um, but I think that's also because Chewie plays it, and it's written not as a a upfront bad guy like.
1: Absolutely. Talking about the
2: Hollywoodization of it. You know, you're like, these characters are all so complex. And again, it's Mm -hmm. all in a wide frame because you're constantly seeing everyone in the context of something. And it's never Mm -hmm. a close-up where you're only seeing this person just for what they're doing. You're always recognizing how the dialectics of their relationships, of their relationships to the world.
1: And everyone is operating under the, like, in conditions of pure desperation. So, Mm -hmm. like, there's... Mm you know, as, uh, ethically or morally opposed as you might be to, you know, the Fishers using the child, there is like, I I guess, like, in on the darkest of days, like a, like a nihilistic justification for that in in Mm -hmm. sort of like, like, like you were saying, Chris, that more accelerationist, uh, tendency, um, and thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. For, I, I love I love getting to talk to you, Chris, because I have like a like a half thought out question. And then you're like, here is a fully formed <laughs> rhetorical essay on the subject. So
3: well, if, if I can, if I can just give one more addendum I, to that point, which I think I kind of missed, is that one of my favorite books. is is this book called Nightfall by Isaac Asimov. He actually co-wrote it with another guy. I'm sorry to this man. I forget his name. But (laughs) it's basically like there's this world ending event coming. We're still in the post-apocalyptic thing. But it's like coming and everybody knows it's coming. And there's two people trying to organize its prevention. There's like this big science group that's trying to deal with it scientifically and rationally. And then there's this big religious group that's already existed. But now that the end times are coming, they're like, you know, people are really looking to them. Now, Asimov... Staunch atheist, you know, genius, loves science. But he, I think he does himself a credit here, which basically the, what happens is when the event comes, the science people can't get their shit together for a number of reasons, you know? They don't have all the answers. Sometimes rationality is like not enough in the, in the face of just like things you can't understand. Maybe they don't know how to talk to people as well as the religious folks do. So when shit finally, stuff, I don't know if we can curse here. When yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. finally, <laughs> <laughs> when shit finally hits the fan, um, the religious people actually kind of like see things through and they really like shepherd people and he doesn't like um glorify them, like he's still they're still like kind of cultish and stuff. But basically, like they have the tools to see people through the end times. And you can love it or hate it, you can be a believer or not a believer, but he's clearly not endorsing what I love about that book, especially for Isaac Asimov, is like he's not even endorsing religion. He's just saying, like, These moments of like people say, let's burn it all down. I assure you that if we burned it all down today, the right wing reactionary forces would outnumber and outgun, Mm. you know, I'm always shocked when like queer people of color or like trans people like burn it all down. Like, no, that's not good for you. (laughs) Like, you know, like they are already, I don't like them. I don't agree with them, but like they have such a deeper level of organization already built up to like get through Mm. that moment. And so I think accelerationism and these kind of tendencies are actually like really dangerous. Mm. Um mm. and I think it's okay that that they caught heat for that in the film, you know.
1: That's a really good point. Like the 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 neoliberal project of the last 40 years has done such intense, such thorough organizing and we are at a point of like where the pendulum is just all the way to the right and it is going to take a long time for us to to build anything that is even comparable um, on the left. I like similarly, someone asked me recently, they were like, oh, if you could just like make the United States like a socialist state, like in one fell swoop, would you do it? And I was like, no, absolutely mm-hmm. not. Because like, the, like you said, the right wing reactionary forces to that should just imagine it's like the U S is now socialist. There would be a fucking yeah. armed just yeah. like insurgency across every part of the country from these people who have just been indoctrinated into these far right reactionary politics who are like, this is all evil. I need to kill all of the socialists and let and they and like you said, mm-hmm. they do. And this moment in time, they do outnumber us. So mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. that's a big part of like, why? I know we're doing this podcast. And you know why I started making my own political content in the pandemic was just like, this is like we're right now we're in like the numbers game portion mm-hmm. of like of of like our of like the the u.s left's political development like we're we're not like yes we should be organizing for right now and for like the challenges uh that are are cropping up now but like we should also be building towards the next 10 20 mm-hmm. 30 mm-hmm. years and you know like that's why i think agroprop is such an important part of I like at least what we're doing now and what I try to focus on because I'm like, yeah, start start that to political development early because we're going to need those numbers Mm -hmm. down the line when when shit really, really hits the fan. Mm -hmm.
2: And additionally, it makes me think about what you started with, Chris, this idea of doing it and doing it well, especially in terms of art, because the difference between nuance and being able to hold multiple truths at once, which a transition requires, which This sort of slow ease is the realm of the artist. How can you hold that? And how can we as artists teach something about that? Because I think it is an art, uh, we're going to need massive creativity and people are going to have to learn to use their imaginations and be inspired to be creative as we transition into new ways of being. But that there's a big difference between nuance and holding multiple things and cognitive dissonance. But I think they can often get confused to be similar Mm. things um so i think this is a film that deals with it extraordinarily well and what we can aspire to as we think about the art that we make and the difference i always think about the difference between those two things because you mentioned neoliberal project i just wanted to talk about go back to cousin nigel and just that scene for a moment because i think that's Mm. such a a cool so much stuff in there scene and um
1: that was a scene that I like had because I hadn't seen this movie in maybe like, I don't know, half a decade or more. That was a scene I had forgotten about. And then mm. on this rewatch, I was like, oh, this is maybe the most important scene or like one of the most important scenes in this movie. Yeah, it really popped for me. This this, this go around.
2: Quran says about that, uh, about David. David belongs in to a context, a context that is a cultural context that deals with ethnic, spiritual, religious, aesthetic use. You cannot just strip that part and put it in your living room as decor. You're going to put Guernica as a backdrop for your fancy dining table served by butlers. At what point, at that point, what does it mean anymore? So for context, for those listening, um, Nigel is collecting art. Um, But in this, and the question is really why, like for what purpose if the world is going extinct?
1: Yeah, it's like, and it's his whole, it's his whole job. He's like one of, he's like the, he runs the Ministry of Artistry. This is part of the Arc of the Arts project, which is is just like, you know, finding, collecting, and protecting these old pieces.
2: Right, and like every other character in the film, I just think he is not something of the future. It's like we have Nigels everywhere. I mean, in some ways it's asking us to look at museums as Nigels, like pulling these things away from their original context of the, um, who they belong to and then putting them for what purpose.
1: Well, I I reread uh, a little bit of the first chapter of capitalist realism because Mark Fisher uses he opens the book talking about this film and specifically this scene and the the idea of when you are preserving culture as opposed to allowing culture to evolve as it like, you know, dialectically interacts with the new then culture ceases to be culture you know like like the, the the sheer act of preservation isn't actually preserving anything when you know that there's nothing new to come
3: i also feel like it's one of one of many moments in the film which serve to kind of unify this dialectic of like civilization and barbarism mm. so you know I love that scene. I It is so, like, white, uh, not just in terms of the family, but, like, all of the walls and the floors and the lighting. It's very bright and white and clean. And you have to kind of also think of Clive Owen's character, as kind of, like, alcoholic. He just got, like, roughed up, dropped out of a van, picked up his bus fare from the floor, you know, decided he needed need this thing. So he takes the car through the street. You know, it's all dingy and dirty. And... And it's like this, like quote unquote sanctuary that he arrives in, Mm -hmm. but but it's but it's barbaric, just like the opening of the film where you see, you know, England will rise, you know, every every, everybody else has fallen, you know, only England will stand strong. And as you noted earlier, it's like then you pan too, and it's like humans in cages with like like dogs, like you know, uh, barking at them, and so. The the point being, there is no civilization without barbarism, and um, and and all of that cleanness and all of that high minded art, like it it requires the people in the cages. It requ- mm-hmm. And so and then mm-hmm. we have to question, like, well, not only what is it for, but like, do we even believe the things that we say about art and culture and virtue and nation and, and you know, or is it really just all lies and? I think in the case of, you know, of England, uh, like just a goaded empire, um, you know, like <laughs> I think it's quite clear that the answer is, you know, it is all lies, right? It's all just ideology. And I think, you know, funny enough, I read, I didn't notice until recently that like uh Quaron like read Zizek in preparation for
1: oh wow, this film.
3: And so I think that's where you're getting a lot of this kind of, Ideology around us. I think it's why the backgrounds are so rich. It's why every shot is like filled with information because like that's exactly what real life is. You, know, mm-hmm. you can go drive whether you're in LA or in New York. You know you look at all these advertisements and there's just so much just pure ideology coming at you a mile a minute, mm-hmm. um, and it's all contradicted by the actual fact of how our society reproduces itself, which is horrible and barbaric and evil.
1: That's for me, that was like the biggest for like, if if I had to like sum up one of the main, not themes, but like the big takeaway just from watching this is just the idea of cognitive dissonance, which I think this movie nails in just such a gut punching way. And it's like, like we've been saying it is, it is a cognitive dissonance that we are already practicing today in 2023 in the real world, but just like taken to its most logical conclusion, which is like, you know, people are still going to Starbucks. They're still, they're still buying their, there's still, there's everyone, the people who can afford it are still doing consumerism. Um, there is the constant propaganda of Britain soldiering on. Um, yeah, the open air cages. Uh and then the 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 greatest moment of cognitive dissonance is, and it's kind of like plays back into what we were talking about earlier about, you know, just like humans or at least not being ready for that transformational change that we're all hoping and fighting for, which is the slow walk out of the war zone with the baby, Um, Mm. which is one of the, which is like probably the most beautiful moment of the film. Um, For listeners, it's like, you know, they're, they're in this giant, uh, they're in like this projects uh, apartment complex. There's literal war happening, people shooting from outside, inside. They walk through with the baby and all of the fighting stops. First first
2: she gives birth, which is like, oh my God.
1: Yeah. And then they walk through and it is a moment of pure humanity. Everyone stops, everyone marvels, people just want yeah. to like barely, you know, kind of touch the bit like. And this is, you know, we're to, in this world, this is the first baby born in over 18 years. This is a literal miracle and it does stop everybody in their tracks for a moment, but only for a moment.
2: Talk about organizing. Only like, for, that's for a, a moment. moment of yeah. Inherent organization.
1: Yeah. And then but then they then they just go right back to fighting like even it would be like the equivalent of i don't know what like like literally seeing jesus reborn like mm-hmm. you know jesus <laughs> walks down the streets you know is like handing out water turns it into wine like is performing miracles and you're like holy shit that was actually jesus mm-hmm. i got to go back to work i got I, I got a shift in in a few hours yeah. like and that's it, yeah a beautiful but also a depressing moment because i was like yeah that's i think that is what the reaction would be
3: well i think it's one of those moments that underscore how deeply committed to not being precious this film is because that could have easily been a moment of just pure beauty and it could have stopped the war, right? Like I think nine out of 10 filmmakers would have had a climax moment that hinges upon that. And, you know, it truly was just a matter of, you know, maybe it was a minute from the walk down to outside, but yeah, just a minute. And then boom, right back to killing. And I, I just, I, you know, I want to, I feel like what's really beautiful about that child is that, and this maybe goes back to also this idea of like organizing a bit, is like the child represents the future. And what's important is that like every group wants the child because every group has its own claim on the future. And... This is again, where the role of like being clear with your ideology and specific in your organizing is very important. But I think it also kind of underscores the point that the future itself is a site of struggle. I think this is like really important, you know, for anybody who wants to change the world that like the future is not decided to the extent that it will, we will have to struggle for it against each other and sometimes with each other, you know, in, in, internally, but it is a site of struggle and everybody wants it to go their way. So we can't be passive. You know, we can't just go along with the flow. We have to get in the struggle. And I think that's exactly what this film shows us. Mm-hmm. You know, And thankfully it turns out okay, but it didn't have to. Everybody wanted that baby. If the state had the baby, you know, it'd be like baby Diego 2.0, whatever. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it would just be some spectacle. You know, if, if the fishers got it, it'd be, it would accelerate their honestly, probably futile military campaign against the right. government.
2: which is amazing because the uprising is happening and he's like, well, now we have to, and you're like, the thing you wanted to accelerate is happening,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so it's absurd. Yeah. You know what else has made me think of this moment? I'm curious your thought, it was a brief moment, but the activists who were throwing uh, what was not paint, but like cans, cans oh, of yeah. paint, but it didn't destroy the art. I just thought that was like, and people were really enraged um, I don't remember which group they were with, but environmental activists. And they were, people were so enraged. And I just, this moment made me, I mean, I think what they're getting at is exactly sort of also what this scene with Nigel is getting at is the absurdity. Yeah. People were yeah. like, why do you have to tell your point destroying art? People are so upset. And that was the point. And I, I don't know. I really, I just, I really appreciated those young activists for that moment for this. I think because that's the fucking point is like how much. How relevant is a painting that we just think is so profound about sunflowers when the world is burning? Like, yeah. throw the paint at it.
3: You're so correct. I mean, it, you
1: said it at the top, Ripka, It's it, This is about choice. This is all about Maybe. the choices you make. And it's it it's starkly clear by the end that's like, all you have are your choices. And not making a choice is a choice. And it's it's not even like who you who you get to to tell at the end, like, "Oh, I made these choices. It's just like it's for yourself like who who do you want to be in in these moments of struggle, in these moments where conditions are degrading um And I think this is a really beautiful movie that really, yeah, just highlights how how important these small individual choices are and how they ultimately add up to something that is greater than the sum of its parts. you know
3: art is always going to be political. I don't think it you know. Especially film. Film is a super capitalist enterprise. You know, just the mere fact that a film gets made puts it through, you know, the political economy that exploits the world. So art is always going to be political. All we can do, I think, is be intentional with, you know, what kind of political resonance we want to have. And I think this is a really great example of how to do that. Um, while making something that is like commercially, I was going to say successful, but apparently it lost $5 million.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um,
3: critical, critically well-received, though. Um, critically beloved. Look, I'm sure it made the last $5 million back on Blu-ray sales. So it's probably, <laughs> you know, probably earned a few bucks in the end. But, you know, that is nonetheless successful. It surely was successful for all the careers of all the people who worked on it, um, even if the, the film itself didn't earn a buck. Um, and it's possible, right? I, th- I just think that it's really important to, like, Sometimes I think we're afraid that we have to do one or the other. You make political art or non-political art. There's no such thing as non-political art. Mm. You know, you turn on um, Real Housewives of Atlanta, and it's 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 steeped in ideology that either reifies, critiques, or in some way passes judgment on the kind of values that keep us in line. One way, and I, I'm using that show as an arbitrary example. I think any show does that. You know, you, t- you turn on a sitcom and there's the like heteronormative nuclear family. Like whatever it is, there's always political content in art. And I think this is a great example of like making a claim that isn't necessarily like didactic, although I'm not so mad at didactic art myself. But like it's not, you know, I think we also have to be like aware in why this film was and is relevant. Is like to the extent that we want to rouse people's consciousness, going again back to the Tony K. Bumbara idea that the artist's role to make the revolution irresistible i think that should always be handled in terms of like where are people at like what what do the masses what do common folk want to engage with so frank i think that's why it's really important that you're on TikTok because you know i personally detest how social media apps make us think but if we're going to be there let's be there like you you know and i think that it we, we can't be above TikTok, we can't be above popular entertainment and yep. we can always find creative ways to rouse political consciousness if we're just really clever about it like why don't
1: and i mean i mean that's that's why we wanted to do this podcast and make it like the intersection of you know popular entertainment filmed entertainment and politics and and you know Force I was going to say, force people to think about their art in a political way. no one's forcing you to listen to this. if you've listened to this you you've you've chosen to listen to it, but yeah, <laughs> just to 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 bring up how politics is exists in all art
2: so we like to do awards at the end of these for each film, and it is time to head hand those out. Uh, our first award is a point with a view, and this goes to the character with the best politics in the movie
1: i mean, it's probably ha- has to be Julianne Moore's character. Right. Because she was she she was she was leading the Fishers. She wanted to she uh, like sincerely wanted to get key to the human project. She was double crossed by uh, Luke and the others. And she had not left. She had not lost her uh, activist faith, unlike Theo. So, I'm um, yeah, I'm going
2: with I forget her. Mm. What's her character's name? Julian.
1: Julian. Yeah. E- easy to remember.
2: Chris, what do you think?
3: That's tough. I think I think you're right. I mean, it just makes me think that like not many people have. Even con- are even contending in this category, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But I think, I think you're. I think I'm with you, Frank.
2: I'm gonna. I'm with you, I, I, Julian. I, my gut was like key. I just think key holds a very important role. Not just. Uh, I think it could be easily dismissed as just she's there giving birth, but like she is crucially making. I mean, talk about who's making choices. And I do think it's important that she's often deferred to at pivotal moments to make a choice of. I want to stay. No, I want to go with Theo. Um, and seems to be really connected, even though she's experiencing this, not even knowing what giving birth is at first and having any model for that, but extraordinarily brave. But I I think politically, like she represents this spiritual politic that is very grounded in the female body.
1: That's a really good one. Um, all right, the next award is Despicable You, goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. Nigel! You going with Nigel? I
2: think so. There's so, I know there's many, but I just, I want to give Nigel an award. I think he'd appreciate it.
3: I mean, I would go with uh, Sid. Yeah. Because not just is he, is he a cop and, and you know, ACAB, but uh, <laughs> but also, you know, he kind of goes one step further where, you know, he breaks back in to sell them out, you mm-hmm. know, presumably not for even his duty as a government official, but for individual gain, which is unsurprising. But, you know, he just, it's to double down.
2: Oh, and that actor is so
3: good. So good. Sin thinks that <laughs> it wants to know if they're coming in here. What? Yeah. All right. For offending people with that impersonation. <laughs>
1: It's fine. You can't. I don't think we can uh, offend uh, English people with their ac- their silly accents. Um, all right, and the last award is a star is scorned. This goes to the supporting character in the movie that this movie should actually be about, or maybe not actually, but like could be about. So, like for me, I'm going with like Mariska, who is the the woman that they meet in the refugee camp, who essentially. Helps them like get through the the last the, the third act of this entire movie. She finds them a, a safe haven. She finds them a boat. Like I want to see a movie about Mariska doing organizing under the conditions of like living under you know like a like a state controlled refugee camp.
2: Thousand percent. I want a Marika trilogy. Like all of it. She was um like love her With the dog the whole yeah when she takes a thing like. Hit I mean, she's just there every moment, ready to go.
3: If I'm answering this question seriously, uh, I definitely want to see the Fishers in action. I think, Frank, we can, we can kind of palate cleanse on them and, and see them at their best. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, however, if I'm being silly, which is my way, I want like a telenovela, telenovela of baby Diego.
0: Uh, oh my God. Yes. In the
3: world, <laughs> just sweeping women off their feet, you know, getting everything <laughs> he asked for.
1: That's a Ooh, really good one. Good. Wow. Um, all right, Chris, last thing we do here before we part ways, we like to discuss how we as artists and people are striving to practice our anti capitalist beliefs in our own lives with all of its complexities and contradictions. So, is there one thing that you do in your life or a practice that you engage in uh, that you would like to share?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the kind of, you know, obvious answer is I run this organization called Anti-Capitalism for Artists, where our mission is to raise the class consciousness of artists. Um, and we do that by putting on a lot of free offerings and events. Um, and I would say I think that that's important because of uh, what we were talking about earlier in the, con- in the conversation about, you know, needing to tip the scales and how many people have facility with these ideas. I think as much as I want um, a lot of advanced organizing in this country, I think we're kind of behind on the political consciousness level. And so I'm firmly committed to doing that methodical work for the next few years. Um, at least, I mean, I don't know. I just, I know it'll take at least a number of years before I feel like I can perceive a qualitative change in the state of like artist consciousness and you know we try to get more refined in terms of how we define success and I think that's going to be a continual conversation like how do we know if it's working you know I think that's something that we're always going to kind of be asking but it feels to me like the most important use of my time and specific ability.
1: That's a very good one and we can speak from experience that it, it's a, a great great program um, and I highly recommend anyone uh, to check it, what's what's the what's the website if anyone wants uh, yeah. to check? Yeah,
3: anticapitalismforartists.com, dot com. But we're also on Instagram and Twitter, either at antiCapitalismForArtists all spelled out, or I think on Twitter it's at antiCap number four artist.
1: Well, Chris, this was such a great conversation. Really, really appreciate you and all of the work you're doing, and for you know sharing your time with us today to talk about this incredible yeah. movie. So, thank you.
2: This was great.
3: Thanks for having me. It was a lot of
1: fun.
2: This was fun.
1: Thank you all so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok by searching for Movies versus Capitalism. And again, if you'd like to support this show, head over to levernews.com slash MVC to pitch in. For next week's movie, we'll be watching Ruben Ostlin's 2022 dark satire and Oscar nominee Triangle of Sadness. So that'll give you a chance to rewatch it with us. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.